Welcome to the Blue Stocking Baptist Podcast. My name is Hannah Oliver. And I'm Esther Faulkner. Today we're going to be talking about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also commonly known as Mormonism. This will not be an exhaustive presentation as that would be impossible because Mormonism is very complex, but we will do our best to give you an organized and basic understanding. We're going to cover the history of the church, structure of the church, and the nature of God. We're going to do a part two that specifically deals with the plan of salvation, and we're going to try to give just the basics so that you feel equipped with the knowledge to witness to your Mormon neighbors with the hope that it stirs in you a greater desire to learn more. I've been studying Mormonism for about the past five years, and I learn something new all the time. So this topic you could talk about for hours and hours and hours and always have material. So we hope to also do an evangelism episode specific to the Mormon people in the future. But for now, we're just going to cover what it is and what the beliefs are in regards to salvation. So we're going to jump in because we have a lot of ground to cover. Many Latter-day Saints claim to be Christians, and even many Christians are confused as to whether or not Mormons are Christians. Many today think that Mormonism is just another denomination under the umbrella of Christianity. We're going to show how Mormonism is not Christianity where it varies, and why we will not affirm them in the Christian faith. We mentioned in our discernment episode how important it is to ask three important questions. Is this the same faith, same Jesus, and same gospel? We want you to keep this in mind while you listen and ask for yourself. One, does Mormonism share the same faith? Two, do Mormons share the same Jesus or have the correct view on the nature of God? Three, do Mormons share the same gospel? If the answer is no to any of these... The professor is not a Christian. If you do not know the answers to these questions, please listen to our gospel episode, Trinity episode, discernment episode, and labels episode to help give you some direction. Okay, so to start off our discussion, we're going to talk about the origin of Mormonism. The origin of it can be traced back to what's called the first vision accounts. There are four first vision accounts. These visions were supposedly witnessed to or experienced by the, the first prophet self-proclaimed prophet. Um, those four vision accounts are all different, varying in different degrees as to what happened and who was there. The Mormon church, however, only recognizes one to be absolutely true. So we're going to cover that account um, that the LDS church recognizes as the most correct. But for further research, we're going to add in our show notes the other accounts so that you can look at those and compare um, and also an article by LDS.org that affirms that there are multiple accounts. That article is interesting because Jessica Palmer, the woman who wrote it, she said, I decided to read the accounts for myself. I expected to find added and missing details among the accounts, and I did. What I didn't expect was that despite the differences, the accounts all supported each other. With every account I read, the Holy Ghost testified to my skeptical heart that each was true. Together, these accounts created a fuller, more miraculous picture of what the first vision was really like. Instead of disintegrating, my testimony of the first vision actually strengthened. I think this is really telling because she admits that there are discrepancies, but then falls back on her subjective feeling that it does not contradict. Keep that in mind when we read the first vision account. Okay, so we're going to be pulling from the teachings of the president of the church, Joseph Smith. We'll be covering information that can be found on pages 28 through 34. It's important to note that the teachings of the presidents of the church come in several volumes. There are 17 prophets or presidents, so there is a volume for each one um, in what they've taught. So all of these are um, published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So this is official doctrine. On page 28, it tells us that Joseph Smith had become seriously impressed with regard to all important concerns for the welfare of my immortal soul, which led me to searching the scriptures, believing, as I was taught, that they contained the word of God. I'm going to stop right there. I think it's really interesting that Joseph Smith said that he was, he was searching the scriptures because um, it, it shows us that he was obviously making scripture his standard in the early years. What ended up causing a lot of trouble for him was his distress over the many denominations. He couldn't understand why there were so many different um, disagreeing or why so many Christians were disagreeing on the non-essentials to the Christian faith. 
his parents were actually Presbyterian. And on page 29, it tells us that he became partial to the Methodists. When he was 15 years old, when reading scripture, he stumbled upon James 1.5, which tells us, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. This was the passage of scripture that led Joseph Smith to pray in a secluded location asking for wisdom. It's also a text that you will often find uh, Mormons using, telling you if you'll just pray for wisdom, then God will reveal that um, the Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus Christ. So they, they take this verse out of context. Um, so on page 31, it continues to tell us about the first vision account. It says, so in accordance with this, my determination to ask of God, I retired to the woods to make the attempt. It was on the morning of a beautiful, clear day early in the spring of 1820. It was the first time in my life that I had made such an attempt to pray vocally. Having looked around me and finding myself alone, I kneeled down and began to offer up the desires of my heart to God. I'd scarcely done so when immediately I was seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me and had such an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. Thick darkness gathered around me and it seemed, and it seemed to me for a time as if I were doomed to sudden destruction, but exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me out of the power of this enemy which had seized upon me. And at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, just at that moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. So Smith continues to express exactly what happened. So to summarize it without reading all of it, Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father appeared to Joseph in the flesh. This is extremely important to remember. Two beings appeared to him, not one, and both had flesh and bone. Even though scripture teaches us that God is spirit. Smith says, one of them spake unto me, calling me by name and said, pointing to the other, this is my beloved son, hear him. So gleaning from the text, we can see that Heavenly Father is pointing to Jesus Christ and saying, listen to him. So Joseph then asks these two beings, which of the sects he should join, sects being denominations or church. He is told none of them. And Jesus says, for they are all wrong, that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt. So this is the foundation of what led Joseph Smith to, to become the prophet of the restored gospel the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, his experience with these two beings, as he claims it, telling him that the Christian church is corrupt, or all those who are professors are corrupt. So several days later, a good Methodist fellow had rebuked him and told him his revelation was of the devil and told him special revelation ceased at the end of the apostolic age. Um, I actually didn't know this until I read it in the book and I was really encouraged that somebody said something to Joseph at the time. But instead of heeding this rebuke, Joseph recounts this and other situations as persecution and only confirmed in his own mind that he was right. And so he uses this example to encourage other LDS believers to not give in to persecution, but be strengthened by your faith. Um, Esther, do you have any thoughts about that first vision account? Um, my thoughts are, like, if you're really interested in looking at you know, reading this for yourself, it does give a lot of insight of, as to Joseph Smith's upbringing and mm -hmm. the, the religious climate around him. Um, I, I knew whenever I found out about the Methodist, uh, I don't, I, I want to say it was even like a Methodist preacher. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not sure. I think it was an actual preacher. I don't think it was just a lay person. I was also encouraged that somebody was there to, you know, say that, the truth. <laughs> the truth. To say the truth to him. Um, and he still didn't listen. Um, I find it really alarming that supposedly Jesus Christ and God the Father supposedly appeared to him and told him basically the church is completely corrupt mm -hmm. and all professors are corrupt and all of our Orthodox creeds are an abomination as in as he's therefore saying that the church was prevailed against and it mm -hmm. jesus was lying whenever he said that not even the gates of hell would prevail against the church 
and he's saying that somehow we corrupted it. <laughs> yeah, I find I, that I do. Agree. That's that's a big big boo boo, especially because he you know he obviously saw that scripture did have authority to go to to James to read that, but then he's it just. I mean, he even says kind of at the beginning, he said, as I was taught that it's the word of God. So he started, yeah. he, when he started this journey, I guess you could say, he was, he was genuinely seeking for answers. So it seems the way that the LDS church portrays it. Um, yeah. And I mean, he just veers off into this like totally unbiblical way to speak essentially to God, to actually have yeah. a revelation. I mean, even his, I added the the portion that talks about thick darkness gathering around him and um, that he felt like doom and destruction were surrounding him. And to me, I feel like that just gives it away. Like Joseph Smith, why do you think that what happened to you was from God when you thought you were going to die in that moment kind of a thing. Um, it also reminds me a lot of Muhammad, though I don't know a lot about Islam. I do know that he had a similar experience. I think it was in a cave where darkness kind of en engulfed mm -hmm. him and same kind of thing, feeling overwhelmed. And then all of a sudden he has this vision that is teaching him things that are totally contrary to what the Bible teaches and then establishing it as basically restored. I don't know how Muhammad taught it necessarily, but I know Joseph says it's a restored gospel. Um, I think, I think in Islam, it's, it's the same idea. You have one person who receives divine revelation, special revelation, and it, mm -hmm. oh, the message is everything before you is wrong. Here's the truth. And it's always completely against scripture. Like for yeah. Islam, Islam is, 12 disciples hid the body like Jesus wasn't dead really and completely goes against scripture that said he died and then he you know Christ rose and then here we have Jesus says that his church would not fall into those, apostasy they wouldn't they wouldn't fall into apostasy and here's Joseph Smith saying that Jesus told him it did and it's like but not even that he's literally saying that there are two physical beings yeah because scripture teaches that there is only one god so you look at that and immediately you're like whoa and i do think one of the other vision accounts it was just jesus christ um uh -huh. i mean i haven't brushed up on that i only really yeah. brushed up on the first vision account for this yeah. but i do know that they're all different and they have extremely different perceptions i guess you could say of what happened um but so we kind of already covered it how the the church teaches that Joseph Smith restored the gospel and that there was a complete apostasy after the apostles died. But to kind of back it up with what the church actually says in the teachings of the presidents of the church, Wilfred Woodruff, it states on page four that Jesus Christ established his church during his mortal ministry, but the people fell into apostasy soon after his death and resurrection. And on page five, it states after centuries of apostasy, the Lord restored the fullness of the gospel through the prophet Joseph Smith. Um, some things that are, I think, really important to note is that Smith's first vision is recorded as happening in 1820. Um, so that would mean approximately 1800 years have passed since Jesus Christ has been crucified. That means that there's not a single believer from the time that all the apostles died to when Joseph Smith has this revelation. And I mean, we kind of already mentioned it, but Matthew 16, 18 says, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And this is Jesus Christ talking to be Peter. Um, Esther, do you kind of want to explain that verse a little bit more? Yeah. Um, so in, let me, let me get the Bible real quick. <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> okay. So the context of Matthew 16, 18 is whenever Peter um, confesses Jesus as Christ and his profession, Peter's confession of faith, so to speak, is he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered to him saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, 
You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And in that, what Jesus is saying is upon Peter's profession of faith, what he was proclaiming, that Jesus is the Christ, mm-hmm. that was the te- that was what Christ yeah, would be building his church on, essentially. Right. It's not on Peter. Peter is not, I guess you could say, the head of the Christian church or has some special right. keys <laughs> as right. like the, the Catholic church kind of teaches yeah, yeah, yeah. session. That's not what he's saying. Um, right. It's on, it's on what his, the faith that he was professing, like that would not be corrupted. That's what the gates of hell would not prevail against. And the gospel hasn't changed. We have the Bible. We have what's true. We have thousands of Greek and Hebrew and uh, Arabic text manuscripts. Yeah, <laughs> manuscripts. Text, manuscripts. And basically, we have Joseph Smith here saying that God didn't do what he said he was going to do. He couldn't keep this promise almost calling Jesus a liar in a sense. And I don't remember the exact reference of where this is, but sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. That the word is reliable. We can trust it. It, it's the word of God. The thing is, if, if it sounds like at the beginning that Joseph Smith had the right principle, he was taught the right principle that the the word of God was truth. And that that's why he went to Mm -hmm. the Bible. That's why he went to James. But then after he had this experience with no witnesses, it's like, he just threw that out and he was like, well, it's not ultimate because I've had this experience. I've had this experience. And when you look at the experience, it's just subjective because you can't, it's like when someone tells you that they have like, a, you can't, a vision, you can't disprove them because it's an experience. You can only show them what scripture says. And, and I, I always say, don't let your experience dictate truth because just because you experience something doesn't mean it's true. I mean, look at Joseph Smith. I don't doubt that Joseph Smith had an experience. I really do believe he had some kind of spiritual experience, but it's not a true and right experience. And if we look at every experience, whether Mormon or Muhammad or whatever it is, people in the Christian church who said that God spoke to them, whatever it is, any kind of new word, new special revelation, um, new thought from God, if it goes against scripture, which 99% of the time it either does or it's just vague, we can't let that dictate what we believe is true or false. And yeah, if you, if you look into like some of the, like the new age people who come out of that, like they participate in like yoga and they have these experiences. And once they come out of that and they believe the gospel, they look back and they're like, you know, something does happen. Um, but it's, but not, from it's God. not, it's not from God. <laughs> Um, the Bible also tells us that the 12 apostles were the solid foundation of the church and that Christ was the cornerstone. It kind of makes me think if do LDS people believe that the foundation was unstable or do they believe that nothing was built upon the foundation? I just think it's really interesting because scripture gives no indication that there will be this great apostasy or falling away. Jesus even charged us with the great commission to go and make disciples. So either Jesus was short-sighted and was only speaking to that time, which doesn't, doesn't make any sense at all. Um, or he's not all knowing because he's, he's charging the apostles with the great commission, but then there's going to be this great apostasy. So it's just interesting. Um, Brigham Young also taught in the early church that there were many divisions and schisms, even during the time of the, while the apostles were alive. And he uses the text in the Bible, somewhere of Apollos and other Cephas to kind of, kind of justify his, his position by saying that the early believers were following teachers and not the gospel. Um, He claims that because they followed men and not God, they lost the priesthood. And much of their restored gospel hinges on the priesthood being lost because it's believed that Joseph Smith was given the priesthood keys. And so now he has the authority to, I guess you could say, reestablish the church on earth. And Mm. the LDS church does teach that now that the gospel has been restored, that now nothing will come 
and prevail against it, um, mm-hmm. which is interesting. <laughs> Happened once. Can't happen again. <laughs> no, it can't, no, because Joseph Smith is the, he's the big guy. Um, so okay. we have, so we have ample evidence, like we've already talked about, that there has, that there has been true Christian believers since Jesus ascended into heaven. And Joseph Smith is asserting that because there were so many denominations that the whole Christian body was confused and their minds were darkened. Um, but they're, the same faith, same Jesus, same gospel has been present throughout all of church history, though it's had ups and downs, periods of darkness and periods of revival, it has never been prevailed against. And Joseph mm-hmm. Smith's claims are unfounded. I think it's really ludicrous to say that there was no believers for 1800 years. Cause that means 1800 years worth of people are in hell though. Mormon Mormon doctrine on salvation is very different than we would understand it. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. When I hear that, I think 1800 years of people in hell though, they believe these people are still given the opportunity mm-hmm. to progress to Godhood. So <laughs> it's not an end of the road for, for the people who were living during that time period, but yeah, it's not that bad, bad of news <laughs> for the Mormons. No, it's not that bad of news because if you just do proxy baptisms and proxy marriages, then you're giving there your ancestors an opportunity to progress. But the Christian belief is obviously if you die in your sins, you go to hell and there's no purgatory. There's no middle ground. There's no going back. You're dead and you're dead in your sins and you're not reconciled mm-hmm. to God. And that's end game, which is scary. Um, so to think 1800 years, that's just too much for me. (laughs) This is a very basic overview of the beginning of the LDS church. And we're kind of going to move into what the book of Mormon is. Yeah. So the, the book of Mormon is said to be another Testament of Jesus Christ. Joseph Smith said that the book of Mormon was quote, the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion and a man would get nearer to God by abiding in its precepts than any other book, end quote. (laughs) So that really just shows where he he sees the Book of Mormon even above the Bible. Um, On September 21st, 1823, Joseph Smith supposedly saw a light appear in his room while praying. On page 57 of the teachings of the president, Joseph Smith, It states, a heavenly messenger appeared at his bedside, standing in the air, wearing a robe of exquisite whiteness. This messenger was Moroni, the last Nephite prophet, who centuries earlier had buried the plates upon which the Book of Mormon was written, and who had held the keys pertaining to the sacred record. Moroni commanded him to go to a nearby hill and to acquire that record. When he went to the hill, Moroni allowed him to see the golden plates in which the Book of Mormon was written on. But Joseph was told that he would not have possession of the plates for another four years. Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon with something called the seer stone. In recent years, the church has written papers to address this. We'll share the resources for further study and a video talking about exactly how he translated the Book of Mormon in our show notes. Joseph Smith claimed that the Book of Mormon was written in a language known as Reformed Egyptian, which is not a real language. Yeah, any, I believe it's an Egyptologist will tell you that Reformed Egyptian is Is not a thing. thing. (laughs) Um, But it's really interesting how he actually translated the Book of Mormon. He would take this brown colored stone and he would put it inside of a hat, put the hat around his face so that um, it was nothing but dark inside the hat. And it's, it's been said that's where the spiritual light shined within the hat. And he would see one letter or uh, figure at a time of what he called Reformed Egyptian. And he would then say it out loud to his scribe and his scribe would write down what Joseph Smith saw in this hat. What's mm-hmm. interesting about this is that So it's explained that the Book of Mormon was written on the actual gold plates themselves in Reformed Egyptian. What's weird about this is that Joseph Smith never actually looked at the plates. He used a hat and a seer stone and never actually engaged with the the plates. Um, Hmm. In a video that we'll share, someone had said they went to uh, a conference of some kind where there were Mormon historians. And he had asked them, 
a question about hats, like how deep do you think that hat was, um, to kind of make a point that it was probably very close to his eyes at the time. But they had said something that he thought was very telling. They said Joseph Smith was not looking at the stone. He was looking through it. So I guess you could reason that he was looking through the hat at the plates. But this is, I mean, this is not, this is, magic (laughs) it's not and I have read in many places that Joseph Smith was a big storyteller and he was into folk magic or occultism Um, there's different words for it but he was always him and his family were always known for this kind of thing so yeah the Book of Mormon is also you might be wondering like what is contained in this super special holy book that Joseph Smith is, says is the most important book um, the book is basically about Jesus Christ making an, an appearance to the people on the American continent and it's kind of their story um, who these people were um, as far as I understand they were um, Jews who were living in the South Americas um, I think it, it said they're the, they were a lost tribe. And so it's kind of the battles and the stories of this, these people in Moroni. Um, I believe he was the last prophet and he was the one who wrote down on the golden plates, this account, like the, the account of the Americas of Jesus coming to them. In my opinion, from what I know, more, the Mormon book really only contains what I'd call um, what is it? 19th century Christianity. <laughs> it's, there was something else happening at the exact same time. There's a Christian denomination called the restoration movement, which I've talked in the past and Joseph Smith and the restoration movement have a ton in common specifically on their views of baptism, believing that it regenerates a person to faith. And when you read the book of Mormon, the first time I started doing some perusing and reading it, I was actually at a restoration movement college and so much of it. I was like, you could, is this the book of Mormon or is this a restoration movements Bible? Mm -hmm. Because they're very similar. Um, and I have read in other places that Joseph Smith had spoken to or had a relationship with Alexander Campbell, but I mean, that's old information that I can't, Mm -hmm. I can't verify right now. Um, it's just things that I've heard, but so all very interesting things in where the book of Mormon came from, what it is. And, um, I think it's, strange that the church views it so highly because their important doctrines, their doctrines in which their foundation of their faith are on are not from the book of Mormon. They're in doctrines and covenants and Pearl of great price and their prophets teachings. The book of Mormon is really not, um, you could take the book of Mormon away from the Mormon faith and the Mormon faith could survive. I don't know if you agree with that Esther, but yeah, I've, I've heard that from, people who've come out of the Mormon church that you can read that and not come up with half of the, the, the core. Oh yeah. Cause there's, there's not, it's, it's basically Orthodox minus their views on baptism and the gospel's distorted. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a distortion of truth. I'm not saying that it's right. Um, And it's a fictional story about Jesus going to the Americas. We would assert because of, Mm-hmm. other heretical things that Joseph has espoused. There's no reason for us to trust that it's true, but I really don't believe that, that anything that the Mormon church is founded on the book of Mormon to survive because it's so yeah. such a small portion, though they say it's central. It's just, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. Okay. So now we're going to move into how the Mormon, how the Latter-day Saints view the Bible. Um, what their, what their attitude towards the Bible is, what, you know, how, what is it to them? They accept the King James Bible and some, and some read, uh, Joseph Smith even has a a translation. It's not common. Like it's not, I I believe that they, in their wards and their meetings, like they will use the King James Bible. They don't use Joseph Smith's Bible. Although there are some, isn't it, would you say sex of, or like, that Mormonism, other, that like other branches of Mormonism. Yeah, I'm I'm lost the word of what it is, but it's like I think one it, of them has the rights to it, and that's why like the, the, 
I'm trying to remember what they're called. It's not the FLDS church that has the rights. It's the, it's Joe. Okay. So Joseph Smith, this is kind of going off topic, but Joseph Smith had a, his oldest son, I believe if I remember correctly, had also claimed to be a prophet at the same time that Brigham Young did after Joseph Smith's death, because Joseph Smith died prematurely. Um, Mm. He was murdered. So because Joseph Smith was murdered and um, he didn't have time to basically say who his successor would be. So there was a lot of debate and um, internal, I don't, I don't want to call it fights, but disagreements about who was supposed to be the next prophet. And Joseph Smith's son was one of them. There are many offshoots of Mormonism, a ton. There's a lot. <laughs> so as far as I understand correctly, his son had the rights to that translation. And though their church, that, that church still exists. I think it's called the church of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm not a hundred percent. I can't remember what they're called, but they have the rights. They are smaller. They aren't, they don't hold to a lot of the doctrines that the LDS church has, but they do have the rights to it. That's why I think the LDS church doesn't use it because they don't have the rights to it. Yeah. And also I think I don't, I'm not sure it was finished. I don't think it was, I don't think he had finished. I'm not, translating. I don't remember. I don't know. I, I want to say, I want to say I, I read that it was unfinished and they said they wanted to make sure that they used a, a completely translated and that's why they stick with the King James version. I have heard that before. Regardless, they use yeah. the King James Bible. So, right. And they are very uncomfortable with any other version. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is kind of another side note, but if you ever do evangelism, stick to the KJV for their sake. And it's just uh, easier. It is easier because then you don't have to to debate over translations. That's something that comes later when they come out of the church. But when you're doing evangelism, there's nothing wrong with the KJV. So Mm -hmm. use it as a tool to evangelize. Um, In regards to inerrancy, uh, the Mormons believe that what's outlined in the Articles of Faith, uh, it's number eight or point eight, says, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it's translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. The Mormons have the Book of Mormon. They also have the Pearl of Great Price, doctrines and covenants, as well as all the teachings of the presidents of the church and any formal publications by the church are documents um, that the LDS body accepts. They also accept LDS.org as um, right and true doctrine as well. So they have a number of ways that supposedly God has communicated their church's teachings to them. It's not just the Bible. The Bible is not the cornerstone. And they add that as far as it's translated correctly, which Mm -hmm. means to them the King James Version. Mm-hmm. which that can lead to some issues, you know, in the Texas Receptus and the eclectic text, if you get into that a little bit and start bringing up the the Greek and Hebrew, they don't want to see that. They want to see the King James Version, which it's a whole nother story. <laughs> which also, this is back to the Book of Mormon. We didn't mention this, but the Book of Mormon is written in King James, what would you say, dialect? It's, yeah. which is fascinating because he's saying that it's translated from reformed Egyptian, but it's also a Southern American book. Yeah. Yeah. There's, like and, cent- is it Central America or South America that it's supposed to have taken place? I think place? It's, it's South America. I think, I, I think you're right. But you would think that it would have been, it just doesn't make sense. I me. mean, there's even no evidence that Egyptian was spoken in South America. So even I if you're going to say, okay, Egyptian, maybe he means reformed Egyptian, but he's really just talking about Egyptian. Yeah, that's, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know either, but the more we, the more like you talk about that, it's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> so much, so much Maybe of this is I like see it. I could see if, if it was like, if, if the Book of Mormon was about like the African continent. Yeah, sure. You could make that argument, but it's not, <laughs> it's okay. South America. So moving on, <laughs> when, Sorry. back to Esther's about their um, view of the Bible and their other texts that they have. I had written a letter to the First Presidency in the Quorum of Twelve back in 2016. I had asked them, what is official doctrine? Um, <laughs> You're I, bold. 
<laughs> well, I was getting super frustrated because two Mormon missionaries had refused to acknowledge the King Follett discourse, which is a sermon by Joseph Smith. And unfortunately, the church did not fulfill my request by writing me back, though I was very specific and I wanted them to tell me very clearly. Um, they did send me some literature and two different Mormon missionaries who told me very strongly the King Fuller Discourse is official doctrine. And I said, okay, that's great um, that two missionaries disagree. So who's right? Like, and I was very disappointed because I really wanted evidence. Like, look, this is what the church says is official doctrine when I was evangelizing and I didn't get that. Um, so this makes talking to Mormons so challenging because not all Mormons believe what the church teaches. Not all Mormons even know what their church teaches. They believe the basics or they're cultural Mormons or they're young in their faith, whatever it may be. The Mormon church has really changed into a very subjective religion. My understanding about like 50 years ago, they were very um, objective. Like mm -hmm. if it was taught by the church in any of the scriptures or teachings of the presidents, it was, it was final. Like it had yeah. the final say. Like and they, they would to the point, it almost like reminded me of like them, I guess they stopped like, Oh, I don't think catechize is the right word, but catechizing their members. Like they were knowledgeable about these things. Yeah. They, I, they, they could articulate what they believed. And I don't necessarily even think that there's a lack of that in the church necessarily because I have been to Sunday schools and they do teach. They walk through the teachings of the presidents and they, they teach out of the prophets literature and things that the church teaches. Mm -hmm. My opinion is that the big shift happened with so much being placed on their personal subjective experience because mm -hmm. a Mormon is their religion is very, um, inward. I guess you could say it's, it's how, how they just know it's true. So I guess mm -hmm. I could say, um, Jeff Durbin has said something in the past. I couldn't find the exact quote, but he said something along the lines of you have to convert a Mormon to Mormonism before you can convert them to Christianity. And I do agree with it because like I'm saying, the religion is really subjective. And even though they claim to submit to the authority of the church, they oftentimes trust their personal feelings over their Holy scriptures. Cause they'll, they'll use the, they'll, they'll say the Holy spirit, or the Holy Ghost, they say the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost has not confirmed that in my heart yet, or the Holy Ghost mm -hmm. has told me differently. Whatever it is, it's what the Holy Ghost has directly told them. And even in that article with Jessica Palmer, she said, the Spirit confirmed in my heart. So she's looking at something, and she can clearly tell that there's discrepancies with the first vision accounts. And instead of using reason to be like, something is off, there are red flags in this, she says, the Spirit has confirmed in my heart that these are true. And so you can't argue with that, because now she has made her own personal opinion about these things the standard. And if you've ever had a Mormon attempt to prophetize you, they normally encourage you to read the Book of Mormon and pray if it is true. Moroni 10.4 in the Book of Mormon says, And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And this verse makes me kind of laugh because... It only gives you one possible outcome, that the LDS faith is true. You're supposed to ask if it's not true, which is kind of confusing because if I ask and I don't get an answer, does, does that mean it's not true? If I ask and the answer is yes, does that mean yeah. that it's not true? Um, but they also will turn it back on you because I've, I've told Mormons before, well, I've prayed about this. And scripture tells me it's not true. And they'll normally mm -hmm. say, well, you did not ask with a sincere heart, with real intent and faith in Christ. Otherwise, you would believe this testimony is from Jesus Christ. And it makes mm -hmm. it really challenging because you're like, okay, but this is what scripture says. And they, mm -hmm. they, everything is about your burning of the bosom. Like I should have a spiritual response to the Book of Mormon. And when I do, I will know that the church is true. So, I mean, if you haven't listened to our What is Standard episode, again, go and listen to it because we do explain in depth the difference between subjective versus objective in great detail. And this pertains to the burning of the bosom that Mormons mm -hmm. talk about.
it that that part about the the praying and seeing if it's true and basically saying if you don't it's because you did not pray with a sincere heart or real mm-hmm. intent it reminds me of pentecostals whenever they whenever they say do you want to receive the holy spirit or do you want to speak in tongues and you say well yes i do and if you don't it's because you don't have enough faith okay. or yeah. you don't you're not trying hard enough it kind of reminds you It's all your fault. If you would just believe, if you just have enough faith, the Holy Spirit would manifest this to you and the language is the exact same. Uh And I I mean, being on, I've, I've been involved in that before and it's, it's peer pressure. And I've supposedly done that before. It's like, how many, I mean, Mormons just to become, you know, to be Mormon, you have to have this testimony and they're going to, it's, it's a peer pressure. That's what it is. I do really believe that Mormons, a majority of them, those who are sincere in their faith, really did have a stirring within their soul, a real mm-hmm. response. And I mean, you see this in different denominations of Christianity too, where there's this emotionalism, mm-hmm. this an emotional response where it's yeah. like, oh, Jesus, I just love him so much and he just loves me. And there's no doctrine behind it. It's just this like, feeling like Bethel, <laughs> right? <laughs> The New Apostolic Reformation, yes, yeah. indeed. Which I've been saying that they have a lot in common, NAR and Mormonism, uh-huh. but I get a lot of flack for saying that. So someday <laughs> in the future, we'll talk about that. Um, but yeah, so this method of determining truth is just really contrary to what scripture reveals. We're told to search the scripture to see if what's contained is true. The Bible is our objective standard, and since Mormonism does teach many doctrines that go against the essentials of the Christian faith, we see that their standard is not scripture, but it's essentially themselves. They claim to have a burning in the bosom, like we've already mentioned, that confirms the truthfulness of the LDS church, but scripture never encourages us to go inward and pray for a feeling or confirmation. We are told to read the Bible and accept its teaching objectively. Jeremiah teaches us that the heart is deceptively wicked, and we cannot trust a feeling or vision or person who brings a gospel that is contrary to what we have been taught. And this is true when we're talking about Mormonism and it's true when we're reflecting even in the Christian faith, because we have some of this in Christianity. Um, Galatians is a rebuke to this kind of thinking and even says that if an angel brings a different gospel, let him be accursed. Going back to the first vision, Joseph said that two personages came to him with a new revelation. What does Paul say about such thing? that we are to reject that message. So there's no way that we can accept Joseph Smith's message, even if we have an experience reading the Book of Mormon and feel that it's true. That doesn't mean that it's true. And we would say it's not. So the biggest hurdle is that their faith is highly personal. You cannot convince them that it's wrong because of the the personal experiences that they've supposedly had. It's difficult to even convince them with Mormon literature because they know the church is true. Um, they'll say things like, I know this church is true. I have a testimony of that this church is true. Mm-hmm. If you've ever been to a Mormon ward, which is where they gather for Sunday service, you'll see that they, they don't do expositorial preaching or teaching from the pulpit. Instead, it's various people in the body going up to the front and giving their testimony, their testimony that the church is true or that the Book of Mormon is true. It always includes things like, I know the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true because the Spirit confirmed it in my heart. That is what they preach from the pulpit. That's and that's, that's what every Mormon's testimony is that. It is all the same. Now, I've wow. never met a Mormon who says that their testimony is anything different than that they've, that they've had a spiritual experience and that the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost has confirmed it. Um, mm. It's a common thing. So now we're going to kind of go into, we're going to transition and we're going to quickly go through the prophet's structure in the LDS church. Um, we're going to give some definitions of words to kind of help um, you. Some Mormon vocabulary. Yes. Um, <laughs> so if you're ever reading books, watching sermons, or wanting to learn more, you know what you're reading. So to start off, award. We've kind of already mentioned it, but award is um, the local congregation or the body of believers. It's made up of LDS families that live in the area surrounding the ward. Mormon families do not get a choice which ward they will attend. They are assigned the closest one to their residence, and it's commonly a brick building with a white spire. The church service is made up of the Lord's Supper, which is water and bread, and someone in the body speaks on a topic. 
They also have Sunday school, Relief Society, which is a women's ministry, and a class for the littles after um, the main service, which if I remember correctly, is called primary. They are uh -huh. very strict Sabbatarians and spend a majority of the day at church. New members are baptized at the ward as well. And Esther is looking at me because I know she wants an explanation on why they use water. What? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So I can why? explain it. No grape there juice? No, no grape juice, no wine. So there's, I was actually reading about it before, but I didn't know if I wanted to mention it. Let me grab my doctrines and covenants. Give me a second. That's okay, so weird. So it's, to my understanding, there, this is something that I've heard, but I couldn't find an article about it. This was a long time ago that I heard this. I had heard that um, they stopped using wine because people were poisoning it. And so they used water. Um, I could not find a source on it though. And that I heard a long time ago. So don't quote me on that, but that's something yeah. that I've heard. You might know if this is true or not, but I have heard like that they actually make the bread for it. Is that true? I don't know. I couldn't tell you okay. that. Okay. Um, but doctrines and covenant 27, one through two says it matter not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink when ye partaketh of the sacrament. If it so be that ye do it with an eye single to my glory, remembering unto the father, my body, which was laid down for you and my blood, which was shed for the remissions of your sin. So doctrines and covenants in that in 27, one through two teaches that it doesn't matter what you use. You could use water. You could use wine. You could use grape juice. You could use, I guess you could say apple juice, milk, um, milk. <laughs> it has to do more with, are you glorifying God while you're doing it? Um, and the sacrament there perspective of it is a renewal kind of a thing. It has a sanctifying effect, kind of like a restart when you go through the next week. Um, and then I'd also read something else about um, the word of wisdom. If you're familiar with it, we're not going to touch on it, but just briefly prohibits the, the use of alcohol and it does not prohibit the use of wine in the sacrament. So they could use wine. I think it's more traditional at this point that they don't. But like I said, I have heard in the past that they started using water because their wine was being poisoned. And I think they just never really stopped. Interesting. Kind of a, a mixed bag of opinions there, but they do use water. Out of everything I said, that is the truth. <laughs> wow. <laughs> do you have any thoughts, Esther, <laughs> before I move on to the next one? That's just, that's just mind-blowing to me. I've never heard of somebody doing that. Like, I mean, I've heard like, you know, disputes between people who use wine and who don't, who use grape juice, who it's like, well, if we're using grape juice, we might as well just be using, you know, water or apple juice, you know? And it's like, the Mormons actually use water. <laughs> like I said, like we said at the beginning, you could talk about Mormonism for days and days and days. And every time, every time I engage with it, anytime I try to learn something new, you're always surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've come across some surprising things. I did about them being the, the strict Sabbatarians. I have, I do notice that, isn't it like they're at church from like nine to like 12, 12 is it's like, that's, yeah, it's like an hour for regular service and then you have Sunday school and then something else. Yeah. Know. It's what I, I think I haven't been to a ward in a long time. Um, but my understanding is, depending on the size of the Mormon population surrounding the area, they might also have different time slots or they might oh. just always because it's like the family ward and then it's the singles ward, um, that kind of thing. And so it kind of breaks it up a little bit. So I think that they're having service all day and then so that there's room within the church. They, I mean, they have lots of rooms in the building, but. I don't know if you know, do they allow – kids under the age of eight to do communion? Do they allow that? Do you know? I don't see why they wouldn't. Um, I, I want to say they don't because they're baptized when they're eight. Yeah. The reason, the reason why is sure because, that. because I know that they don't allow them to be baptized until they're eight and then say that the church is true. But I was wondering about, you know, communion for them or the Lord's like Supper. communion. Yeah. I was wondering about that. I'll Google it. So just really quick. So I did find that in preparation for the sacrament each week, church members take time to examine their lives and repent of sins. They do not need to be perfect in order to partake of the sacrament, but they should have a spirit of humility and repentance in their hearts. Every week they strive to prepare for that sacred ordinance with a broken heart and contrite spirit. 
C three Nephi nine twenty. This is from LDS.org. So I guess you could reason who are church members. Are church members only those over eight, or are they the whole body? I'm not really sure, but so we're gonna move on though. Something to look into if you're curious. Um, so next we're going to talk about the priesthood authority. This is the power and authority to act on behalf of God in true faith, in true to the faith on page 124, it says about the priesthood, God gives the priesthood authority to worthy male members of the church so they can act in his name for the salvation of his children. Priesthood holders can be authorized to preach the gospel, administer the ordinances of salvation to govern the kingdom of God on earth. Male members of the church may begin their priesthood service when they reach the age of 12. They begin holding the Aaronic priesthood, and they later may qualify to have the Melchizedek priesthood conferred on them. So like we already said earlier, the restored gospel hinges on the priesthood being lost, um, which they claim occurred after the apostles died. So we'll post some resources in the show notes to give more clarity on the, the differences of the two priesthood authorities. And when we do evangelism episode, we will touch on how to directly refute this because this doctrine is a really big deal, but it's not something that you could explain in two minutes. Um, next we have Bishop. Uh, Bishop is a spiritual leader of a ward. He is like the pastor in a Christian church. However, he is not paid and he serves alongside two counselors. He also does not teach from the Bible at the pulpit. His position is a calling at the recommendation of the stake presidency. He is also referred to as the presiding officer. Um, this is a quote from the teachings of the presidents of the church, Brigham Young, page 140, that the office of bishop belongs to the Aaronic priesthood and holds the authority to minister in temporal and spiritual things. Bishop is also the highest office in the Aaronic priesthood. Stake is composed of several wards, and the stake president is the spiritual leader and presiding officer of the stake. Like a bishop, he also has two counselors. Okay, so next one is temple. The temple is for temple-worthy Mormons, and it is where they perform rituals and ordinances. A temple recommend comes from the bishop and stake president or their counselors. Marriage ceilings, endowment ceremonies, baptism for the dead, and enjoying the presence of God in the celestial room are all things that take place in the temple. New members are not baptized in the temple, but can do proxy baptisms for those who are no longer living. The temple is completely closed off to the public. But... This is a side note. Before a temple is uh, blessed by the prophet, they do open house. And so I've personally had the opportunity to walk through the Arizona temple, um, the Phoenix, Arizona temple with two missionaries who I actually still keep in contact with. Um, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> the only thing that I really can say, everything is white, just like this pure, clean white. There's gold everywhere. Um, dark wood, beautiful paintings, furnishing that looks like it belongs to the Queen of England. I mean, this place is massive. I think we were probably in the temple for two hours. And I mean, they shuttle you through because there are certain rooms they won't let you go to. Like you walk past, I remember walking past the endowment ceremony room, but we didn't actually get to go into it. They don't take you to like the lockers or anything where they change into their, from their street clothes into their their garments. Um, but it was so gaudy. The celestial room, I mean, it lived up to its name. You feel like you are in heaven, essentially. Like it is just beautiful. Um, the ceiling rooms are beautiful. Everything's beautiful. So with that to say, I don't have any pictures cause that's prohibited when you go in there. But from what I remember, I just remember being awestruck, like, mm -hmm. and there's, there's hundreds of temples all over the world. And they are expensive temples. They, are, they do not skimp on their temples. Um, we will post a really great article that's written by an LDS man, and he talks about everything in detail. So everything from the endowment ceremony to what happens in ceilings, all of, mm -hmm. all of the stuff that happens. And it's from an LDS perspective, so it gives you more of a clear picture. Perspective. 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 Yeah. Um, and I also am considering writing an article on how polygamy is still practiced in the church in a spiritual sense. I know lots of people Mormon always, church. yeah, in the Mormon church, how people always want that, that question touched on like are Mormons, do they still practice polygamy? To me, I feel like it's kind of a, a silly topic to bring up with Mormons because it doesn't really get you to the gospel or the nature of God. So I tend to avoid it until someone has come out of the church and then talk about it. 
But yes, they did practice polygamy in the early years. Temple ceilings, you can be sealed to multiple women. And it's super fascinating. So they, they still do practice polygamy, but not, not in the physical sense. One man is not going to have five living wives. He might have one earthly wife, and he might have been sealed to a woman previously who died. But I'll write an article about that to kind of clear that up because it's, it's actually one of my favorite subjects because I just think it's so fascinating. <laughs> um, then we're going to talk about, uh, so the general authority, it makes up the first presidency, quorum of the 12 apostles, quorum of the 70, and they have church-wide authority. They are the top dogs in the Mormon hierarchy. So the teachings of the church, Brigham Young on page 138, says the 12 apostles hold the priesthood keys for building the kingdom of God in the world. This is directly tied to the prophet. Um, Esther, do you want to talk about who that is? So the prophet is the head of the church. The prophet is the president, the seer, the revelator. Uh, those are all synonymous. Um, there's been 17 prophets in the church's history. Uh, Russell M. Nelson is the current prophet of the LDS church. True to the faith on page 129 says, we are blessed to be led by living prophets, inspired men called to speak for the Lord, just as Moses Isaiah, Peter, Paul, Nephi, Mormon, and other prophets of the scriptures. We sustain the president of the church as our prophet, seer, and revelator, and the only person on the earth who receives revelation to guide the entire church. It also says, you can always trust the living prophets, end quote. If a living prophet gives new revelation that goes against what, the pre what was previously taught, the old revelation now passes away. A good example of that is that the black members of the LDS church were not allowed to hold the priesthood, but that was later changed by revelation in 1978, which I think is I, I, not ironic. It may be ironic, but that's whenever... Well, it did happen around... The time, the civil, yeah, the civil rights movement. Because I'm, they just so happened to match, yeah. you know, the church. Yeah. Same man. <laughs> um. So every is it twice a year? I yeah, it's twice a year. Um, April the, and October. They have what's called general conference. That's where the prophet and other speakers, high bigwigs in the church will speak to the whole Latter-day Saint church. Um, like you said, April and October is when it happens. That's where any new teachings or policies or revelation is announced at the general conference. Um, have you noticed, I, like, the, the terms that they use, like president and general conference, they, it sounds so American. Yes. Doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, the Mormon, the Mormon church is the quintessential American religion. Isn't that something that's said in American gospel? Yes, it it's, is. <laughs> it's, and it's so, so true because everything about it is what us as Americans. American are. dream. It's American Which we, dream. we have not touched on the whole one day you might become a, a god. god. But, but every American thinks <laughs> that they are their own God and wealth Preview. is a marker of America yeah. and all these things. Yeah. Preview, preview for next episode. <laughs> <laughs> so as you can see, the, the Mormon church has a hierarchy structure and the way that it's set up, everybody has somebody over them. They've got somebody beneath them. It's just this long chain of command with your, the prophet, president leading, you've got your wards, the ward president, the counselors, the, do they have deacons? We didn't mention anything about that. I don't think that they have deacons. Yes. They, they do? do have deacons. I believe their deacons are their 12 year old boys. Oh, wow. Pretty sure their teenagers are the ones who administer sacrament. Because with the Aaronic priesthood is more just the ward and Melchizedek is the higher ups. Gotcha. Uh, to briefly express that. Like I said earlier, it's more in depth. Yeah. But 
like the bishop is the highest rank of the Aaronic priesthood. They, their boys and the younger men in the congregation have roles because everyone in the church has a calling. You, mm-hmm. you do, you, you give your time to the church. You have, whatever it you is. have work to do. <laughs> yes. And we'll tell you what it is. <laughs> they will. They'll, and I think the way that it's given to you is that you have, it's either the stake president or the, even above him, but someone tells you what your calling is. Um, huh. you don't have a choice. Yeah. Anyway, so Esther and I have, we're, we're kind of shifting gears and changing our mind because we have been recording a really long time. And <laughs> so we're going to break this up. Um, as of right now, we're going to do three parts. Who knows? Maybe we'll do more, but <laughs> right now we're going to break it up a little bit. We talked about the structure and history of the church. We're going to yeah. save the nature of God for a different episode but we're going to post it on the same day. So everything you'll have access to it. Um, but it will be shorter and, um, we'll just be on the nature of God. So we're going to end this episode. We don't really have much exciting to say, cause this is kind of on the fly, but we <laughs> do thank you for listening. We hope that you do come back to learn about the nature of God and learn about the plan of salvation in the, the next episode after that. So God bless. And thanks for joining us. <laughs>